0: The Crude Life with host Jason Speece.
1: Welcome to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us here this week on the Crude Life Week in Review, a place where we take the week's best interviews and we put them together in a nice Week in Review package for you. And, of course, you can access the exclusive full-length interviews anytime you'd like at crudelife.com. That is crudelife.com. Well, let's take a look at what we have on tap for you today, give you a rundown, if you will. Brandon Davis is going to join us in a bit. Swan Energy, they're buying leases, another 500 wells, 40,000 acres as they pursue their push towards natural gas. They're going to go heavy natural gas, not so much on the oil side, but the natural gas side. So if you've got some leases you're looking to sell, stick around. Brandon Davis with Swan Energy is going to talk about why they're looking for those leases. Also, Lynn Helms, Director for the Department of North Dakota Mineral Resources, Gives a little bit of a recall what life was like when rig count hit zero back in the day of the last boom and bust cycle, if you will. It was his first week on the job, and rig count hit zero. Boy, that's something else there. Lynn Helms coming up a little bit later in the program. And Tom Masero with Great American Mining. He talks about Bitcoin and how they're using it in the Bakken and blockchain in China. Bitcoin here, I, I tell you, folks, you got to stick around. In fact, we should get right to Tom Massero with Great American Mining because he will do a much better job explaining how they're mining Bitcoin and helping with emission management. I mean, we just had 19% flaring in the Bakken oil fields, and here's one of those solutions, folks, right here. Tom Massero, Great American Mining with a solution to flaring and emissions management right here on the Crude Life Week in Review.
2: Tom Macero, Great American Mining.
1: Thank you for joining the program here today. Boy, I tell you, there's a lot going on in the world of digital currency, Bitcoin, if you will, in terms of oil and gas. And I had like three different news stories, and I I sent them over to you, Tom, and and you sent me a couple back. And I thought, you know, we should just have a quick five-minute talk about just what's going on in the world of Bitcoin and oil and gas and the direction that we seem to be going, even if we want to get into blockchain and smart contracts at some point, because I think this world is coming much faster than people think, Tom.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, right now, because of you know the coronavirus and everything that's happening geopolitically, there's a war over money and what money is and what the, I would say, world. You know, reserve currency is going to be, and China is making. uh, You know, that was the article that you sent me. That China is making a play by utilizing blockchain technology to implement their own digital currency, Um, and so that competes directly with our U.S. dollar, and most importantly, competes with a reserve currency that uh, gives us, as Americans or as the United States, uh, um, a a stranglehold in terms of power and influence um, globally, and that's. Uh, they're coming after that very clearly.
1: How does this transition work? I mean, I see it happening over a five to 10-year period, but the more I'm looking at it, it might be over a five-year period. You know, I've got people sending me uh, conspiracy videos. We're getting rid of cash. That's what this whole cool coronavirus thing is. And I've got other, you know, you, you, you've seen them like I have. And I, you know, I don't want to discount them, but at the same time, I don't want to give them any credence either. But I do know this. This has been going on for a while. And you can go back a decade in a Super Bowl commercial where they were in, in the line at some sort of deli and everybody was paying with their, their Visa and MasterCard electronic currency and all of a sudden the guy with cash comes in and the party stops. So it's that, the, 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 the social training towards electronic currency has been going on for 20 years. And we're here now, we're here. And the transition is happening and that's why I'm bringing you on more than anything is to help educate the people so as we take a look at this transition, you know, how do you see it over the next five years as China is starting to integrate it now? Do you see it starting through oil and gas, or do you see it just full-on economy, Amazon.com?
2: Well, m- most importantly, I think it's important to make the distinction that what China is proposing, uh, and specifically the CCP, they're proposing a, a blockchain-based Digital currency. Now, if we think of blockchain, Bitcoin is built on blockchain technology. What separates what China is doing and how Bitcoin operates is that you, Jason, can have your own node and essentially verify any transaction that you do on the Bitcoin network without anybody getting in the way of it. The the same use case that china is utilizing is a scenario where they control all of those nodes so if we think that they're a very totalitarian um you know society already their centralized use of a blockchain will will magnify that because then they can essentially um uh censor block any transaction you won't be able to transact uh in, in that fashion so um you know i think there's going to be this uh parallel fight within blockchain uh, technologies whereas bitcoin is the freedom version and china will be putting out their centralized version and i wouldn't be surprised if the u.s follows suit at some point and offer some type of digital version of the u.s dollar that can be uh you know kind of done
1: the same way well the reason i wanted to ask you about the oil and gas connection almost like a a first in if you will like to me this we're we're still in the early days but you know we're past mid not midpoint but you know we're past the 10 yard line so to speak the, the the revolution has already started but there's still time to get involved and figure out a way to integrate it into your world when I think of oil and gas, I think of some of the things that I believe you guys are still doing this, aren't you? You guys are mining Bitcoin over there, aren't you?
2: Yes, we're, uh, we're leveraging a flare mitigation service that consumes a lot of ectri- electricity, decreasing the emissions for oil producers in the Bakken and mining Bitcoin with that flare.
1: So when when I look at that is that, that's what I mean I look at this as a great way for a energy company to almost test the waters and get involved in really what's coming down the pipe um is am, am I thinking a little too abstract here or am I hitting the, hitting this a little
2: Yeah and I would say it's not just uh, a net positive for oil producers but every all the stakeholders involved from the local uh, contractors and, and folks who work on the patch, it's good for them. It's an alternative uh, um, work scenario. And then uh, rights holders and royalty owners, as well, is, it's a very good thing because it's an entirely new revenue stream rather than these flares going up into uh, you know, our atmosphere, um, not providing any value to anybody.
1: So, what do you tell people in America? Because, I mean, there's people rolling their eyes at me right now just even trying to have an interview and talking to you about Bitcoin and oil and gas, because, you know, people can't connect the two. Um, I do see what China is doing. I know that there is a way that the oil and gas industry will understand what's going on. Uh, Do you you have like a kind of an elevator pitch or a, a kind of an easy way to explain how the U.S. really needs to understand that China is doing this and um, the U.S. quite doesn't have the mining infrastructure that is needed at this point?
2: Sure. So, I mean, one thing that I believe that President Trump has put an emphasis on over the last couple of years is for us to gain, uh, as a country, uh, energy independence from the rest of the world.
1: And that was Tom Macero with Great American Mining. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit theCrudeLife.com. That's the CrudeLife.com. Coming up next, Lynn Helms with the North Dakota Department of Mineral Resources. My name is Jason Spees, and you're listening to the Crude Life Week in Review.
3: To listen to the full-length interview. Visit theCrudeLife.com. I don't need nobody to tell me. If I should die or live the Crude Life is sponsored in part by
0: Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative. The cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery. The Crude Life with host Jason Speece.
1: Welcome back to The Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Speece. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, we have Lynn Helms with the North Dakota Department of Mineral Resources. Is there?
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: Oh, great. How are you doing today? Uh,
4: you know, I feel very healthy. I wish I was out fishing like some of my friends, but uh, um, <laughs> but someone has got to stay here and direct this amazing amount of traffic and uh, changes in direction.
1: Well, uh, it's a Friday and it's uh, you know April 24th. Kind of feel like I got to date things these days because. You know, next week when some of this stuff airs on the radio, it's going to be on the uh, podcast as of, you know, Friday night. But when it airs on the radio, things could change. And that's how quickly things are going. But just, you know, a quick kind of a a minute or two, just version where we're at today, if you will.
4: Yeah, so um, we have seen significant additional shut-ins this week in in response to the negative price signal the the negative WTI price signal that industry saw on monday uh tuesday wednesday thursday of this week and we've seen uh our best estimate is uh around 1200 additional wells shut in and uh about hundred and ten thousand barrels a day additional shut in and so we're we're now very rapidly approaching that 1 million barrels a day or, or right right in that territory in terms of the million barrels a day for North Dakota production and uh, we have put out a notice today for a hearing May 20th on economic waste and how that should be determined and uh, what, if any, regulatory actions are appropriate uh, and what the consequences of those various actions might be. And that'll be May 20th at 9 a.m.
1: What I really wanted to talk to you about, though, was uh, a comment you had a couple years ago that I found pretty fascinating from a logistical standpoint and and i never really thought it would come to a, a reality but right now we're kind of living in a world where everything really is on the table and we're trying to take things off logically and i remember a few years ago you talked about i think rig counts if they ever got down to zero just really the the, the reality behind the detriment behind that and it had to do with more than the economic impact, it had to do with trying to find people to hire again and trying to locate equipment and just that whole logistical thing. I I just remember you had a very good summary of how that whole thing works, and I I just wondered if now wouldn't be a good time to maybe revisit that, not saying that's going to happen, but I I think it would help some people just kind of go through the process of, of, of what that looks like, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I've seen it once before. Uh, Seven months after I took this job, the North Dakota rig count went to zero for uh, a few weeks. And it had not been at zero at at that time for more than 50 years. So um, only once in, what, 75 years have we had zero rigs running in the state of North Dakota. Uh, I've heard some, you know, there's always people that want to make Uh, wild projections, and so I've I've heard people talk about that with regards to this pandemic, and it's certainly possible, uh, although not likely, for the very reason you talked about. Uh, Our conversations with the operators have indicated that they they now, uh, particularly through the 2015 price collapse, uh, learned that Uh, Even as an individual operator, if if you plan to be active drilling and fracking on the other side of this demand destruction, you need to maintain uh, the intellectual capital, the the institutional knowledge of a drilling department, uh, connections with contractors, and experienced rig crews that allow you to that give you some core to build on on the other side. And those companies that went to zero in terms of drilling rigs uh, encountered an enormous amount of inertia when they attempted to uh, come back out of that and get back into the business of of drilling and completing wells. So uh, it's, it's something I think almost all of our industrial companies are are active operators are aware of they're all doing their level best to hang on to one or two drilling crews and some shared frac crews uh, so that they don't lose that institutional knowledge and all of a sudden they're in uh, a position where the the inertia of zero makes it slow or or near impossible to get back up
1: to speed. How about what's next for for some of these? these operators, some of these people, you know, looking for work, that sort of thing that are kind of in limbo. And what I mean by what's next is, you know, there is a little bit of a lull, obviously going on. Some people are doing some homeschooling. Some people are doing some online training. You've got, you know, people are advancing their careers and their lives and and maybe in the oil and gas sector still. And you and I have talked about just kind of rethinking rig counts for a lot of different reasons nothing's been defined before but along those lines about looking at you know the the way rigs operate today is there a direction that maybe people should be thinking when it comes to recertification training artificial intelligence some of the innovation I imagine is going to be kind of scaled in or integrated into the new rigs that are going to be added as the as the industry builds itself back over the next twelve months.
4: Yeah, so we um, we expect most of that innovation to happen uh, in the fracking area and then in the producing areas. So we saw industry uh, build into the drilling process enormous efficiencies between twenty fifteen and, and twenty nineteen. Uh, to the extent where they've, they've almost squeezed uh, all of the juice out of that turnip. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's probably still some improvements yet to be made, but, uh, you know, they've almost reached the, the physical limits of how quickly you can, can drill 20,000 feet and properly cement a well. Now, if somebody comes up with a... a incredible innovation on, on some new type of cementing material that that allows uh, more rapid turnaround there in the stages of the well that, that all bets are off I guess but you know they're already drilling a 20,000 foot well in 10 days so there's not a lot there but on the fracking side uh, there's I think a lot of efficiency to be gained. Uh, we were just starting to see people implement artificial intelligence in the in the process of controlling the, the pumps, the rates, and the pressures, and uh, that you know allowing the frac stages that went before to inform the the computer of what what to expect and and how to respond, uh, and they can respond much quicker than human beings can to the signals that are coming in terms of rate and pressure. And then we're really starting to see uh, people get into uh, a lot more electronic data collection and mm-hmm. uh, AI control of producing wells. The artificial systems, um, the, the way they operate and uh, can, can ramp up and
0: down with production there, there's a lot to be gained there. And that
1: was Lynn Helms, Director for the Department of Mineral Resources in North Dakota. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit crudelife.com That's crudelife.com Coming up next, Brandon Davis with Swan Energy talks about how and why they're buying all kinds of natural gas leases right now with the opportunities coming down the pipe. Brandon Davis coming up next. My name is Jason Speece. This is the Crude Life Week in Review.
3: Funny, I'll be held yeah, fun. I'll follow you. I think you know the way. If we were pigs, we'd be getting dirty. We're kinda like that, we're kinda like that girl. We're kinda like that, we're kinda like that. We're kinda like that, we're kinda like that, girl. To listen to the full-length interview, visit the life.com. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by
0: Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery.
1: Make energy great again. Yes, that is the hat for the energy industry, folks. Wear it proudly. Show your support for the nation's energy industry with this attention-grabbing fashion declaration. Visit KeepEnergyGreat.com. That's KeepEnergyGreat.com. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, Brandon Davis with Swan Energy.
3: Brandon Davis, Swan Energy.
1: Thank you for joining the program here today, or the program, depending on what part of the country you're in. We've got some fantastic news, folks, some exciting news here, because the world has not stopped in the world of oil and gas. We've got one of the companies out there that is out getting some deals done, putting some momentum forward, if you will. We've got Brandon Davis, Swan Energy, joining us to talk about some, I don't know, are they are the acquisitions done? Are they still in talks? But I just wanted to ask you about just some recent activity that you have going on, if you wouldn't mind.
3: Uh, we are in the process of due diligence on our first acquisition, uh, and we are in negotiations on two more uh, right now.
1: So I guess my, so, my, my next question is, is that, is just the, the start of things? Or is this just, you know, a couple properties or a couple, not properties, uh, a, a couple acquisitions that you had eyes on? Because um, it's, it's exciting news, I think, that just anybody's out there moving ahead. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, we started looking for acquisition opportunities in early March. And then we ramped that up. Um, towards the end of March and the beginning of April, as things kind of started going crazy um, or stopping, depending on who you are and how you look at it. Um, but we we did we've looked at uh, about a hundred or so um, potential acquisitions, and this is the beginning of uh, what we plan to pursue for the next six months. Six months, um, we're planning on making acquisitions, so it's uh, it's the beginning not just a one-off deal and uh, some several really good opportunities have presented themselves and and they look, you know, look amazing. So we're, we're moving forward with them.
1: The word acquisition, acquisitions can be, uh, acquisitions can be used too, but uh, acquisitions, broad term. Uh, What type of acquisitions may I ask? Are we talking about, Are, are you looking for specific ones or are they just, basically things involved in you know kind of the energy field
3: so we're buying fields um mostly gas heavy fields and that was our plan when we set out and and before oil went to where it is today which we don't need to talk about um but i have never seen anything like it but just just insane uh but we we're, we're looking for gas heavy producing assets and and that is called Oak Energy. I I just want
1: to repeat this one more time Because I think a lot of people are frantically writing down in their notes right now You said this is part of your uh, Texas One of your Texas companies called Oak Energy Like the oak tree Correct Okay, and you're looking to pick up 500 wells and 40,000 acres Was that right?
3: That's our goal, yes
1: That's a great goal, man I've just i I'm just flabbergasted that we're even having this conversation in today's, in, in you know, in the light of today's day and age. That is really impressive. And my hat off to you. And I don't want to ask you about your secret of the sauce, but I do. But let's transition to something else. How's Swan Energy doing? I know you guys were doing some stuff in the water hauling business. Are you guys staying busy?
3: So yeah, that's actually inject disposal. Um, and then we're not that busy right now. The trucks are sitting idle for the most part as, uh, as a lot of wells are being shut in and not a lot of drilling has taken place. So, um, it's very slow there, but, uh, we were, we were ready for it and so far it's not really been horrible for us. Um, it's just, uh, we have, uh, about what, a little over a dozen trucks and trailers sitting there ready to go. We just haven't, haven't had a lot of work come at us. So, um, that's, it's not going very well, but it's not bad either. Uh, it's very manageable because most of the drivers are hourly. So um, it's, it's working out okay. It's just, you know, there's just, you can't control what everybody else is doing. And I I was on a call last week um, and heard rumors of, you know, as much as 40% of the production in, in certain areas being shut in in the next few months. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, but for my acquisitions, that's actually a really good thing. So, um, not so good for the trucking company, though. Uh, well, hey, you win some, you lose some.
1: Yeah, well, that's why you diversify, right? You know, you gotta kind of you gotta keep things going when the other sides aren't doing as well. I um I did want to ask you about that. I, I'm not sure your comfort level on something like this, but with that amount of production going down, and you know, Texas Railroad Commission's talking about stepping in and possibly controlling production. We talked about the nationalizing oil, I think, last time, where, when that was floating around. You're looking, you know, you're, you're in opportunity mode right now. I would imagine that you're paying attention to that type of discourse pretty closely.
3: We have to. Uh, we have to. And that's primarily why what we're focusing on is, is natural gas, because it's not the international markets don't impact it as much. Um, and uh, as they shut in oil production, there'll be less gas production from the wells that we're producing it with oil, um, and the price should be decent, so we'll see. Um, but that's you know that's really how simple our, our plan is, and there's obviously more to it, but but generally speaking, we're trying to stay away from heavy oil pro- production and, and lean towards gas, and um, we were already in that mode before this happened, um, and it just amplified our um, our, our vigor really because as soon as, as soon as the price started going down it, it made what we were looking at potentially doing look a lot better and so we got pretty
1: aggressive I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Planet of the Humans or not but I did have a chance to watch it over the last weekend and I thought it was a pretty good movie for people in the oil and gas industry to see because it did a couple things one it Basically exposed the the kind of the business behind the green energy movement, which I know the oil and gas people have been trying to do for a long time, but this, this film did a decent job of it. And the other part it showed was what we've been trying to do here on The Crude Life for a while is talk about natural gas as that bridge to whatever we're doing next. And it's so needed on so many different parts of it. And I remember you had something to do with NASCAR, and I remember interviewing the president of Jiffy Lube a number of years ago in Jackson Hole, where they were talking about synthetic uh, motor oil made out of natural gas. And it just blew my mind, all the different innovations happening with natural gas and just all the different areas it was used. And then to hear you, you know, you guys were ramping towards that too. And after seeing Planet of the Humans, I don't know if you've seen that movie or not, but can you talk a little bit about just where you see natural gas going and, and why you're so... I don't know if all in is the right word or doubling down or, you know, laser focused, whatever the phrase is you want to use, but it's, it's perfectly clear that you guys are definitely focused on natural gas.
3: I've not seen the movie, um, but I pay attention to a lot of things, you know, primarily people with a lot more money than I have. Um, <laughs> Jerry Jones is one of them, and um, he's been on heavy, like very, very bullish on gas for for a while and made some acquisitions because of it and so you know that that's that's what I watch and then you know a little bit of common sense with the coal industry dropping down there's going to be more need for gas as well um so there's a there's a lot of factors that lead uh led me to uh to get in more heavily in in the gas and and that's um just paying attention to to the world it's it's funny because as we were sitting there last Monday, was it last Monday? Watching the oil price go negative thirty-seven dollars or whatever happened, it was insane to see that. Never in my life did I like. I don't. Even, I still don't understand how that happened. Um, but nevertheless, gas prices crept up through that period, and so uh, it, it was very much a sign of uh, we're, we're thinking right, looking at things right, just watching all that take, take place. It was very interesting and it gave me more confidence um, following following watching all that crazy go on so
1: does it matter does it matter where your gas fields are are you looking at certain areas
3: we're only looking in Texas okay a little right. bit we're, we're, we're open to Oklahoma but right now our, our primary focus is Texas we've turned down some opportunities in New Mexico um, and you know, looked at some great opportunities in Oklahoma but it was it was, for what it was, it wasn't worth it um, for us to move that far. So we're primarily looking Texas uh, Texas assets.
1: And that was Brandon Davis with Swan Energy. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. My name is Jason Speece. This is the Crude Life Week in Review.
5: You feel a little dizzy. You're talking kind of silly like you had plans to save the world.
3: Just remember your past will only last if you don't take off your mask. When the outside's chilly,
0: the inside is warm. You've been wishing you'd
3: never
2: been born.
0: All I can say is that you try to behave and try not to get your mind blown. The Food Life is sponsored
3: in part by
1: Make Energy Great Again. Yes, that is the hat for the energy industry, folks. Wear it proudly. Show your support for the nation's energy industry with this attention-grabbing fashion declaration. Visit KeepEnergyGreat.com. That's KeepEnergyGreat.com.
0: Historic.
1: Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. That's going to do it for this week's Crude Life Week in Review. What we're going to do now, folks, by the way, if you want to check out any of our exclusive interviews, go to CrudeLife.com. That is thecrudelife.com. But right now, we're going to hand it off to a voice from 1965. And this is a monologue aired across the public airwaves, and I think it's applicable for today. So we're going to conclude the Crude Life Week in Review with a monologue from 1965.
5: Now then, what makes a nation strong? Taxes? (laughs) There's nothing new about those either. The first income tax was paid by Abraham. It was written on a rock by the hand of divinity and handed to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And you might want to remember this, it was at the flat rate of 10%. It promised the wrath of God on anybody who tampered with or violated that law. Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. Joseph was a relatively well-to-do landowner of the house and lineage of David. Yet the taxes exacted by Caesar Augustus were so exorbitant that he didn't have enough money left over to employ a trusted messenger for the mission. So though his wife was great with child, he made the journey himself. And Christ was born in Bethlehem because Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. And Christ was born in a manger because there was a housing shortage when he got there. Our problems are not new. At Runnymede, the Magna Carta was handed to King John on the end of a sword denying to royalty the right of unlimited taxation. Yet you know it was for us, the American people, to become the first in recorded history ever voluntarily to surrender our rights to private property. Oh, yes, we did. With an innocent-sounding constitutional amendment, the 16th, which says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. And we forgot to put any limit on the extent to which we could tax ourselves. Conceivably, we could be taxed out of all private property. We could be taxed not... 70%, 80%, 90%, but 100%. We could awaken one morning and find that the government owns the farm and the house and the car and has a mortgage on the church, legally. Historically, whenever any nation has taxed its people more than 25% of their national income, initiative was destroyed and that nation was headed for economic eclipse. Presently, the American people are being taxed 33% of their total income. History says we'll roll forward on momentum for a little while, but we'd better get some more gas in the tank pretty quick. You see, ours is not the first by George Good government to arise on the world stage. There have been several. Rome, Spain and Greece and China and each enjoyed about 150 years at its zenith. That's just about our time in the new world. And then each decayed away. Not one of them was ever destroyed by anybody else's marching legions. Each rotted away morally, socially, culturally, economically, simultaneously. You know, one of the most cruel paradoxes of history is this because each was a good government it bore bountiful fruit and when it bore bountiful fruit the people got fat and when they got fat they got lazy and when they got lazy they began to want to absolve themselves of personal responsibility and turn over to government to do for them things which traditionally they had been doing for themselves at first there appears to be nothing wrong asking government to perform some extra service for you but if you ask government for extra services government in order to perform its increasing function has to get bigger right and as government gets bigger in order to support its increasing size it has to what tax the individual more so the individual gets littler And to collect the increased taxes requires more tax collectors so the government gets bigger and in order to pay the additional tax collectors it has to tax the individual more so the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler. And the government gets bigger and the individual gets littler until the government is all-powerful and the individual is hardly anything at all. The government is all-powerful, the people are cattle. Now, some believe that the need is for a vigorous, strong man to arise on the scene to regulate and regiment the affairs of men. Yet history tells us there have been several such. Once upon a time, there was a nation great and powerful and good. She was suffering from the aftermath of war, from a depression, and then came upon the scene a leader, an idealist, self-confident, intolerant of criticism. Wisely, he limited his early activities to combating the financial depression. Nobody could argue with that. But in a while, he began to regulate business and establish new rules to govern commerce and finance. Some of them in diametrical disagreement with the God-made laws of supply and demand, but anybody who disagreed with those new rules was promptly fired. The new leader saw that under the old system of free enterprise, landlords prospered, so he levied new taxes to take away their profits and destroy what he called the monopoly of capital. To please laborers, he controlled prices. To win the favor of the farmers, he gave him loans and subsidies. The national debt mounted alarmingly. Whenever anybody tried to tell him that governments, even as people can go broke, when they spend beyond their incomes, he said they just didn't understand deficit finance. Well, what do you say? Did he build on rock or on sand? I say on sand. For you see, this was the story of Emperor Tsu Po, who led China to its doom more than a thousand years ago I am satisfied with all my heart that if Uncle Sam ever does get whipped here too it will have been an inside job it was internal decay it was not external attack that destroyed the Roman Empire starting about 146 BC internal conditions in Rome were characterized by a welter of class wars and conflicts street brawls corrupt governors lack of personal integrity and moral responsibility about 290 years after christ a roman emperor named diocletian took over he really grabbed the bull by the horns he took over in a period of turmoil and severe depression the first thing diocletian did was call in the gold and close the banks and raise the taxes he reduced the power of the senate delegated its power to a lot of little government bureaus do you know they even had a transportation act back there prescribing the fee required to rent one laden ass per mile and at today's rate of exchange it would have amounted to about one-eighth cent per mile which meant that in order to make a profit a jackass would have to carry five passengers That was simply beyond the capacity of the jackass Diocletian put millions of people on the public payroll. But when this failed to do the job, the country was still in trouble. He asked more personal powers for himself. For a brief while, incidentally, they were standby powers. But then he used them all at once. He froze wages, he froze prices, he froze jobs, he stopped profits. He dictated to the farmer what he should plant, when and how he should sell it, and for how much, and he rationed food. And what happened? The labor market closed down. Incentive was gone. Farm life became dependent on bureaucratic red tape. Exorbitant taxes cost the farmer his land. He kept for himself only a small plot on which he might grow turnips for his family. He lost the rest of it to the state, and without food and with incentive gone, city life stagnated and declined. And Rome passed into what history has recorded as the Dark Ages, lasting a thousand years. Just by turning to the left, the world has gone in circles. A nation would evolve from a monarchy into an oligarchy, from oligarchy to dictatorship, ...from dictatorship to bureaucracy, from bureaucracy to pure democracy... ...where finally the people would cry out from the chaos and confusion of the streets... ...oh please God, give us a king, and God would give them a king... ...and they'd have a monarchy again, and start the whole silly cycle anew. Now either we will profit from the errors of their ways... ...or it follows as the night, the day... ...our children are going to have to relive the dark ages all over again. How come, after thousands of years of experiment, our new nation has come so far so fast? All this in less than 200 years. What is the secret of our success? Well, I think it had to do with a basic American's creed. Perhaps it never passed the pioneer's lips in this form, but if it had, I think he would have said something like this. I believe in my God, in my country, and in myself. I know that sounds like a trite, too simple thing to say, and yet it's a rare man today who will dare to stand up and say, I believe in my God and my country and in myself and in that order. When the early American pioneer first turned his eyes toward the West, there were only Indian trails or traces as they were called for him to follow through the wilderness. Do you know today you can roller skate from Miami to Seattle? From San Diego to Plymouth Rock? In this little bitty instant, as historical time is measured, our 7% of the Earth's population has come to possess more than half of all the world's good things. How come? Well, sir, when that early pioneer turned his eyes toward the West, he didn't demand that somebody else look after him. He didn't demand a free education. He didn't demand a guaranteed rocking chair at eventide. He didn't demand that somebody else take care of him if he got ill or got old. There was an old-fashioned philosophy in those days that a man was supposed to provide for his own and for his own future. He didn't demand a maximum amount of money for a minimum amount of work. Nor did he expect pay for no work at all.